John chapter 19, verses 1 to 16. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? he asked Jesus. Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would, not, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat on the judge's seat, a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Well, as Andy mentioned, we are stepping into some of the most somber and serious sections of God's Word, and none of us find that easy. Even though we know the end of the story, we know that Christ is victorious over sin, death, and the devil, the cost of victory is hard to look at. Many of us were reminded of that on Monday at the Slavic Gospel Association Slavic Gospel Association, the SGA's prayer meeting when we were hearing from Pastor um, Igor Bandora, who's living and serving in the Ukraine, has done for many, many years, and he was describing the cost of the battle. He and we were praying that God would, through the battle, bring victory for the Ukraine. He doesn't know what the future holds for his nation and his people, but right now he's surrounded by the cost of the battle the cost of Ukrainian lives that have been lost, the cost of churches that have been destroyed, the cost of Christians and pastors who've been forced to flee from their churches, many of whom have had their faith shook to the core. And while we pray that God would bring victory for those dear Ukrainian people, the cost of victory is hard to look at. Here in John 19, we come to see the heart of the cost of Jesus' victory, and it is hard for us to see the cost of the greatest battle 
that has been won. That the certainty of the battle is not in doubt, but to see the cost of that victory is hard for us to see. And as we work through the second half of Jesus' trial before Pilate, I want us to see these four scenes as we work through the story. John continues to, to force our focus between Jesus' interaction, sorry, Pilate's interaction with the Jews and his interaction with Jesus. And holding all of these scenes together is this wonderfully important truth that because Jesus is the sacrificial king of God's people, we must serve him above anyone else. That may be at great cost. And we're going to see that as we go. But we must serve this sacrificial king of God's people above all else. And the first scene when we see that is verses 1 to 3, where Jesus was flogged despite being the true king. Now, as painful as it is for us to read verse 1, it should jar in our minds when we read it. Not just because we know who Jesus is, but because of what we've already seen Pilate say. If you go back up to verse 38 of chapter 18, Pilate told the Jews, I find no basis for a charge against him. So why, why now does Pilate order for Jesus to be flogged? John's gospel doesn't give us a detail. Each of the gospels are focusing our attention on the specific things we need to focus on. But Luke's gospel gives us an answer. And in Luke 23, we're told, Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who's inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and found no basis for your charges against him. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. Pilate's plan was to appease the Jews. He knew even though in the courtroom of evidence there was no guilt that could be laid upon Jesus' shoulders, he knew the Jewish people weren't just going to let Jesus go. So his plan was, if I subject Jesus to a flogging, maybe the Jewish people will think that justice has been done. Well, the flogging itself would have been bad enough. The Romans had three degrees of flogging. The least severe was brutal. The most severe often resulted in the death of the prisoner before they even got to execution. But that wasn't all Jesus was subjected to. He was, he was forced to endure a mock coronation. And many of us this weekend have looked back with great thankfulness to the coronation of our queen back in 1953 and attached to her shoulders as she walked into Westminster Abbey was this robe of state which was a, a five and a half meter long hand woven silk velvet cloak that required seven of her maids of honor to carry it as she came in and was arranged for this service. And during that service, she was handed all sorts of weaponry, <laughs> um, including the, the scepter, that symbolic uh, handle of power and authority. And, and when she was crowned by the Archbishop of Canterbury, the crowd chanted, God save the Queen, three times as that crown came down upon her head. Every aspect of the coronation of our queen was to show us 
the, the importance of her role as queen. Well, in Pilate's palace, his soldiers mocked Jesus' position. They forced together a, a crown of thorns that drew blood. They, they clothed him with what was most likely the, the cloak of one of the soldiers. And Matthew's gospel tells us they put into his hand a staff as though it were a scepter, mocking the power of his reign. Their cries of hail, king of the Jews, weren't followed by reverent submission. Slapped him in the face. The scene is horrific. But John doesn't only want us to see the physical abuse. He wants us to see this horrendous, this dreadful irony because Jesus is not a mere man. He is the king of kings. He's perfectly fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy, spoken hundreds of years before Jesus was born. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Here is the king of kings enduring this horrific abuse to perfectly fulfill all of those promises of God so that we would know he is the king. And that thing keeps going into verses 4 and 7. Jesus was despised despite being truly innocent. Pilate is crystal clear about that. We saw the first reference to that last week, if you remember. And we see it again twice here in verses 4 and 6. I find no basis for a charge against him. John wants us to be very clear that the Jews couldn't make up a charge against Jesus in the Sanhedrin. And the Romans couldn't make up a charge before Pilate. Symbolically, the entire world, Jew and Gentile, is declaring that the Lord Jesus Christ is innocent of any crime. Pilate knew that, but he lacked the courage of his convictions. And so his escape route, his way to get out of this tricky mess, was to play on the emotions of the Jews. His plan was to present Jesus, battered and bruised, to his own people in the hope that they would take pity on a beaten man. Now we know the story. We know that no amount of flogging, no amount of brutality, no amount of injury that was suffered on Jesus' person would convince the Jews that he had endured enough. And their cry is, crucify, crucify. It's the first time we read it in John's gospel. But even as they're shouting it, the Jewish leaders know that they've hit a snag too. They know that Pilate's response, this, I find no charge against him, Pilate doesn't buy their argument to this point. They've been working on the case that Jesus is this rebellious leader of God's people, holding himself out to be a king, and he's a threat to the Roman Empire. So you, Pilate, you need to kill him. But Pilate's not being taken in. So the Jews do what any good prosecution would do. This is a trial. And they have two cards left up their sleeves. They play the first one in verse 7. We have a law, 
And according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. That was a problem for Pilate. That was a problem for him because as the Roman governor, Pilate was not only responsible for maintaining the Roman rule and the preservation of the peace under those big responsibilities that he bore, he was also responsible for the local laws to be enforced. And the Jews know that. The Jews probably were referring to Leviticus 24, verse 16. Anyone who uses the name of the Lord blasphemously is to be put to death. And the Jews have accused Jesus of blaspheming against the name of God all the way through John's gospel. We saw it in John 5. Jesus healed the invalid at the pool of Bethesda. And he said to the Jews who were there that he, as with his father, was working on the Sabbath. And the Jewish leaders tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. John 10, when the Jews wanted to stone Jesus, and Jesus asked them why. Jesus said, sorry, the Jews said, we are not stoning you for any good work, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. And all the way through John's gospel, we have seen him show us that the Jews are missing the biggest point. Jesus is not any ordinary man who was pretending to be, making himself out to be, or faking it, that he was in fact the Son of God. Jesus is, and has always been, and will forever be, the Son of God. But the Jews were blind to see it. Spiritually unable to see that the man in front of them was the eternal Son of God. So in one sense, their response doesn't surprise us at all. We've seen this response all the way through John's Gospel. But Pilate's response is surprising. In verses 8 to 12, we see that Jesus was revered by Pilate, despite being misunderstood. Look at verse 8. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. Isn't that interesting? Pilate was afraid. They brought this responsibility before him. They reminded him that as the Roman ruler, he had to put into practice their laws wherever he was able. And John tells us that Pilate was even more afraid. I don't think he's afraid because he's got this responsibility to juggle. Perhaps he realized that the loophole he was shooting for was closing because he he couldn't just get Jesus off the hook through a flogging Now they're presenting him a law, so there's no way that he can just remove Jesus from this circumstance. But that's that's not the kind of thing that makes you more afraid. I think if we're to understand what is going on for Pilate, we need to remember two things about him. The first is that Matthew tells us when Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream Because of him. We don't know what that dream was. We know it made Pilate's wife fearful. And she knew Jesus was innocent. Second thing 
we need to remember, is that lots of Roman officials were deeply suspicious people. Many believed in this idea of divine men who were gifted with some kind of divine powers. In fact, Caesar and the other emperors would refer to themselves as Divi Phileus, meaning son of God. So here's Pilate. He doesn't care two hoots what the Jews might think when they say that Jesus is holding himself out to be the son of God. Here's Judas, sorry, here's Pilate thinking, well, maybe he's a son of God as I would understand him. And all of a sudden, a penny may drop in Pilate's mind. I may have just ordered the flogging of a divine son of God. It's little wonder that he was more afraid. And that explains his question to Jesus. Where do you come from? It's one of the most important questions you can ask about Jesus because 2,000 years ago he looked like a man he walked on our earth he was tired and hungry and needed to sleep and humanly speaking you might think that's all he was but the power that he yet demonstrated the way that he spoke with such authority showed all who would have eyes to see that he is no ordinary man and what have we seen through John's gospel all the way through we have seen Jesus tell us again and again that he came from heaven to earth He's no ordinary man. But we saw last week, Pilate's not really interested. Remember, Jesus answered Pilate's question by telling him that he had come to testify to the truth. And what does Pilate say? What is truth? I'm not interested. So here's Pilate pounding more questions on Jesus. Jesus knows Pilate's not really interested, and Jesus doesn't answer his question, which makes Pilate furious. Not only is this an act of contempt of court, not answer when the governor himself is asking you a question, but as far as Pilate's concerned, he is Jesus's last hope for life. (laughs) Or so he thought. Until Jesus speaks in verse 11, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Jesus reminds us of truth that we see all the way through God's word. All human authority is designated authority. It's given authority. God tells us in Proverbs 8, by me, kings reign and rulers issue decrees that are just Paul commands us at the beginning of Romans 13, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Here's Pilate thinking that he's the one holding Jesus' life in his hands, but Jesus reminds him that the only power he has is delegated authority. It's given authority. Now, at a human level, Pilate would completely understand that. He's a political appointee. He's part of the Roman Empire. He lives under a, under a delegated authority from Caesar. That's the only way that he has any power at all. But what Jesus is saying is all authority is God-given authority. 
You have no power other than that which God has given. And a little while later, after the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, Peter and John are going to tell the believers in Acts 4, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. But they did what your power got and will had decided should happen. In a way that didn't stop Pilate from being guilty, from being responsible for his own actions. God is working through all this sin and wickedness to secure his plan of salvation. But there's another layer to what Jesus says here. Jesus goes on to say, Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of an even greater sin. Caiaphas was greater of a guilty uh, was greater of a greater sin than Pilate. It's Caiaphas and the Jewish leaders, humanly speaking, who have driven all of this trial. They're the ones who have forced these allegations. They're the ones, not Judas, who handed Jesus over to Pilate. And for that, Jesus tells us that Caiaphas would be held responsible for a greater sin. Now we are used to talking about all sin being horrifically serious. Because it's an act of, of wickedness and rebellion against the character and the majesty of God. And all of that is true. But here we're reminded, as we are reminded at other points in Scripture, that some sin is greater and will bear a greater judgment. All sin that is repented of before the Lord Jesus Christ can be fully forgiven by the blood of Christ. But sin that is left unrepented will need to be judged by the God of heaven in hell. And the greater sins will receive greater judgment. Now how much all of that Pilate understood, we simply don't know. But we know it made an impression. Because in verse 12, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. The Greek there uses the idea of kept trying again and again. Meaning this wasn't just a one-off effort. Pilate got something and tried again and again and again to set Jesus free. But, but this is when the Jewish leaders realize they have to play their final ace. And they play it in verse 12. If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. That's the knockout punch. That's the one where Pilate suddenly realizes he has nowhere left to go. Pilate knows not only what they're saying, he knows what they're implying. If you continue to fight against our charge against Jesus, we'll let Caesar know. We'll let Caesar know that we brought before you someone we charged with treason who was trying to rise up against the Roman Empire and you decided to let him go. We'll let somebody who held themselves out to be the king of Israel 
continue to be with their people. And Tiberius Caesar was not a Caesar to mess with. He was paranoid and brutal. Tiberius was the kind of Caesar, if he got wind that there was some kind of anything going on behind his back, well, Pilate would probably lose his life, let alone his position. And that sets the scene for the final scene. Jesus was convicted because Pilate sinfully cared more about himself than Jesus. The prospect of having to face Caesar was too much for Pilate. He cared more about what Caesar thought of him than what the God of heaven and earth thought of him. He naively thought that he would gain more by staying close to Caesar than he would by submitting to Jesus. He had to choose between Caesar and Christ. And Pilate chose Caesar every time. Now when you look at that from the outside in, humanly speaking, you might see some reason for doing so. Because right now, in this moment, Caesar is powerful and dangerous. And Jesus is broken and beaten. And you might think if you had to choose between two men, only men, Caesar's the one that you want in your corner. (laughs) But even if you ignore everything we know about Jesus... To not be only a mere man who's been broken by this flogging and is soon to be crucified, but is himself the Son of God who is going through all of that exactly as he intended in order to rescue sinful men and women. Even if you ignore all of that. Humanly speaking, holding on to Caesar in this moment is madness. Proper stupid madness. Because who is Caesar? He is this manipulative, paranoid, all-powerful despot who, if he gets wind of the fact that there's anything going on that he doesn't like, he'll just get rid of Pilate. (laughs) He did it because sin blinds us. It blinded Pilate, and it blinds us. And I really want you to see how powerful sin is And to see the reason in Pilate's mind between choosing Caesar, because that is what so many of us wrestle with again and again and again. Sin distorts the way we think about everything so that we give greater value to that which is completely wrong and dismiss that which is completely true. Sin blinds us. It stops us from seeing the Caesars of our day for who they really are. We blindly trust self-serving creatures rather than the self-sacrificing creator. We're blind to see that trusting anything or anyone more than Jesus will only lead to disappointment and death. And not only that, one of the reasons we have Pilate's story here is so that we wouldn't be like him. No one can be neutral When it comes to Jesus. No one could be neutral. Pilate couldn't sit on the fence. He had to make a decision. Either he's going to serve Jesus above everything else. Whatever the cost. Whatever Caesar's reaction. Whatever may have happened with the crowd. Or. He's going to serve himself. 
going to serve his power. He's going to serve his position. And you and I cannot be neutral before Jesus either. Left to ourselves, we are born with a sinful nature that wants to put anything above Jesus. It might be ourselves, it might be our careers, it might be our families, it might be good things that we place as ultimate things and put in the wrong place. Anything that is above Jesus becomes an idol. And if that's what you're trusting in this morning, can I plead with you to see where that trust ends? Nobody but Jesus can prepare you to stand before God on the day you die or his son returns. Nothing is more valuable than faith in the Son of God and knowing that your sin before God has been completely paid for by his blood. Don't cling on to position, power, prestige, or anything. Hold on to the sacrificing king who came so that your sin could be forgiven. Now, that's not what the Jews would listen to. Their only concern was to have Jesus crucified. And as Pilate sits down on his judgment seat to give his verdict, the crowd starts cheering. Seventy years ago, in Westminster Abbey, the congregation started cheering. Her Majesty the Queen, to this gathered assembly, faced all four directions of that great assembly hall. And as she did so, the Archbishop called out to those gathered, Sirs, I here present unto you, Queen Elizabeth, the undoubted Queen of this realm, Wherefore, all ye who come to this day do pay homage, are you willing to do the same? And all four corners, all four sections of this vast assembly shout out with great joy, God save Queen Elizabeth. Here's our coronation. Pilate presents Jesus to the Jews and cries out one last time, Here is your King. And what comes back? Take him away. Crucify him. And as if that wasn't enough, we have no king but Caesar. That is not democratic submission. That is not the right way to respond to that God-appointed authority that is ruling over a people. God had repeatedly told his people that he is the only true king in Israel, which means these words are words of blasphemy from the people of God. And it's even more surprising when you remember what's going on this weekend. This is the Passover weekend. The Jews had all sorts of traditions and practices as they went through this weekend, this great festival that wasn't just the Passover, it was the Passover week with the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And they did all sorts of things, including they would recite the Halal Psalms, Psalms 113 to 118. And after they'd recited all of those Psalms, they finished with this prayer. In Hebrew, I'm reading it in English, but this is what they prayed. From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God, because beside thee we have no king, redeemer, or savior. No liberator, deliverer, 
provider. None takes pity in every time of distress or trouble. We have no king but thee. And here are the Jews, not only rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, but crying out, we have no king but Caesar. A few hours before, they then pray, we have no king but thee. And before we judge them, how often do we do the same? Great act of religious service. A joyful occasion when we gather with God's people and commit ourselves to serve him for just moments before or after. We cry out in rebellion. We have no king but... We have their response here to see how dangerous sin is. How fickle our human heart is left to itself. The Spirit of God is powerful to give us the strength to enable to see that the Lord Jesus is the King of kings in every moment of every day. But that is a battle. And it is a battle because in our hearts, instinctively, that sinful nature with which we are still wrestling longs for there to be something else thinking that that's where we'll find our satisfaction. That's where we'll find our joy and our hope and our peace for the future. And the Jews are here for us to see that we should never put some religious practice in place, think that's fine, and then continue to live as though something else is king. Please don't respond like the Jews, and please don't respond like Pilate. Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. Pilate tried. Pilate had a sense that there was a divi filius about the Son of God. There was something different about Jesus. But eventually Pilate caved. Because what mattered most to Pilate was his position, his power, his prestige, his life. Please do not think that if you entrust your life to Jesus, everything in your life will be straightforward. That is not what the Bible tells us. We have brothers and sisters in North Korea, in vast countries across Africa, in many places around the world where to name the name of Jesus can result in death. I don't know what the future holds for our country in the years to come as laws may change and it may be considerably costly to become a Christian. Please don't mishear what is going on here. It's not that Pilate saw that there was a cost but turned away. But if you trust Jesus, there's no cost. There may well be. Following him may cost us everything in this life. But not for eternity. We hold on by faith to one who has conquered death. And if you trust the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, whatever cost may come, your eternal soul is safe. Your life until that point may be lived to bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ who died after suffering 
for us. That's the whole vision of this incredible scene. We're going to see what happens as Jesus is handed over to be crucified next week. But all of that, as we saw in verse 12, is under the sovereign hand of God, whose son willingly suffered all of this horrendous abuse and died. So that if you trust him, you will have life and forgiveness from the Son of God.